Oh, good morning again. It's good to be back with you and to be amongst you and uh, just to enjoy so much your, your company and enjoy uh, being with you. Well, this morning we want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And uh, just to give a little bit of um, uh, introduction to this, you know, I've, I've been working now for with uh, intensely with human beings for a good long time, good part of my life, uh, probably uh, over uh, 50 years of it has been dedicated to working with human beings. And, you know, there's some things about human beings. It doesn't matter what background they have, what, you know, what their uh, culture is or whatever. There's some certain things that are just intrinsically common to all human beings. And in all human beings, there are certain consuming passions, motivations, and goals that drive and direct their lives. Okay? You have it. I have it. Everybody has them. Okay? And so uh, for some people, this may be something material. For example, some people are very passionate, very motivated about uh, uh, such things as power some people really get into position. Other people uh, really uh, are motivated by possessions and uh, all of these kinds of things. And, and so those are the more material type of things that we, we are familiar with. And then there are some that people are, uh, that, uh, people are motivated by and it's less material. Uh, perhaps some people are motivated by the fact that they, they want to be loved. Uh, sometimes they want to be accept, they want to be accepted. And then many people tell me that what motivates them is this drive to attain a certain level of peace and contentment, you know. And so I think it's here, especially in Singapore, you know, you boy, you guys just really go at it and you, and you work so hard and so long and, and everything. And sometimes you just say, just, oh, I just want to be at peace. I just want to be at peace. I want to be content with what I have and, and not, be, not be so discontented about what I don't have. And so this motivates us. And so we pursue uh, that avenue in our life. Uh, for some people, it's all of the above. <laughs> and so they have a combination of the material and the immaterial. And their life is like a three-ring circus. You know, it's just you know, going everywhere and being everywhere all at the same time. And so it gets to be rather hectic. It becomes rather chaotic. And so that's their life, though. That's what they have chosen. The point is that all of us are needing, seeking, and searching for something. Something that will direct our lives. And uh, what we hunger and thirst after uh, is, is, a, is a reading of that, is a barometer of that. It, it is what uh, identifies that. Uh, what we are hungering and thirsting that provides the fuel for living, so to speak. We believe that once we achieve or possess it, we will be happy. And so we continue on on that path. So the question this morning to us is, what do we hunger and thirst after? What is it that, what is the fuel that's driving your life? What gets you up in the morning? What, what makes you want to do this, that, or the other? And so uh, this is the question at hand. Are the choices we make bringing the, uh, bringing the contentment and happiness that we so desperately long for? Uh, you and I know that we've met people who've, who've maybe lived a short time, maybe some have lived a very long time. And basically they tell us, I've met my list. I've met my list. I'm on my bucket list now. <laughs> you know, there's a few things I haven't done and I'm, I'm going to do those. Then what? You see, there's that sense of emptiness. There's that sense um, of discontentment. Life is short. It is important that we choose wisely what we hunger and thirst after. And that is why Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 is so important. 
That's why it's so important. He, in this, Jesus gives humanity divine guidance as what will really satisfy the human soul and heart. What Jesus Christ teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is right from the mind and heart of our Creator. And it is our Creator who knows us better than we even know ourselves. But sometimes we're not convinced of that, are we? So we like to pick and choose. We'll listen, but we'll pick and choose. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense to me, so I'll do it. That doesn't make so much sense. I don't want to do that one. And so we throw that one out. But should that be our attitude? No, our attitude should be one. This is from the very mouth, of, uh, from the very heart and mind of God. And so we're going to go back to the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We've been away from this series for a bit, and so I want to catch us up. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ gives us the character and conduct of his children. And when Jesus looks out upon the masses, he's not trying to sell you something. He's not trying to, you know, sugarcoat anything. He's not trying to do a switch and bait on you. But rather, he becomes very frank. He becomes very open. He comes to very direct. And he says, if you want to be a child of mine, if you want to be a true disciple of mine, this is who you have to be. This is who you have to be. And so we've made it our goal as a church to make disciples. And so we want all the people who come into the doors of GBC to be able to know what it is that God expects of them as a disciple of Christ and how they can become one. So he lays out the character and conduct of all true disciples. I, I, but when you get into the Sermon on the Mount, you're shocked. You're awed. You're almost repay, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're almost want to just reject the whole thing right off the bat. Why? Because he tells us stuff that is not conventional worldly wisdom. You know, he, he t- tells us things that are not conventional worldly wisdom. I, I put it this way. It's almost like you or I are on a, on our computers and we're on a website and we're on the hunt. We're on the hunt for a bargain. And so what we do, we get to this website and boom, out comes the page with all the different selections of everything and all the prices underneath, okay? And as we look at their computer screen, we say, oh, well, this model is this price and this model is this price. This will do this one and this will do less. And so there's a uh, automatically an evaluation. This is uh, cheaper, this is better, and all of that kind of stuff, right? Those are the prices that are listed. Now, then what happens is Jesus goes into the website and he switches the price tags. He switches the price tags. And the thing that we thought was so expensive and so good, God gives it a cheaper price. He says, that's not as important. That's not as important. And he goes to the thing that we thought was just totally, you know, uh, not even in the consideration. And he turns around and he says, that is what is the most important. You see, when you go into the Sermon on the Mount, you will not find conventional wisdom. And that's why sometimes it irks you. That's why sometimes it's, it, it pushes your button. That's why sometimes you just don't want to hear any more about it. Let me give you another example. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says what you are internally is more important than who you are outwardly. That goes against complete you know, conventional wisdom, right? 
We spend billions of dollars on makeup and we spend billions of dollars on plastic surgeons. We spend billions of dollars on clothes and all this kind of stuff. We spend great sums of money on our business cards so that when we hand them out to people, people get this immediate impression of who we are. But in the end of the, at the end of the day, God says what's important is not what's on your business card, not what is hanging on your, on your human body, not what is this, that, or the other. He says outwardly, he says what's important is who you are on the inside. You see, that goes against conventional wisdom. You see? And so what happens is Jesus switches the price tags. Jesus switches around the priorities and he switches around what is important. So he starts with it. He emphasizes the internal over the external. He starts a chain. He starts with a chain of beatitudes, and these are all linked together like a chain preceding to the next one. Now, notice here that when Jesus gives us these beatitudes, he doesn't postulate. He doesn't hypothesize. He doesn't say to you, "This is nice to do, and here are the reasons why." Okay, he doesn't argue with us. He doesn't create this nice compact rational argument of why this should be. You know, he just says, this is what it's going to be. This is what it is. Now, why can Jesus get away with that? Because he's God. Because he's God. You see, this is what we call in the trade proclamational truth. It is not one of those truth where it's come and let's listen to the argument. And if it fits our fancy, if it fits the way we think, then it must be right. No. Jesus just comes around and says, this is what it is. This is what it is. And so we want to be able to look at this with this kind of frame of mind as we come together. What were these Beatitudes? Well, the first one was being poor in spirit. And this is where one sees their their insufficiency and trusts totally in God's sufficiency. Okay? And this is hard for people because, you know, gosh, we're educated. Hey, you know, we got this and we got that, you know, and, and we upgraded ourselves from here to there and, and all these kinds of things. And, and we pat ourselves on the back and, 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 and Jesus comes off and he says, blessed are those, happy are those who are poor in spirit, who realize that there's, they realize their insufficiency and God's sufficiency. And then he goes on and he says, blessed are those who mourn. And this means deal with and are repentant over their own sin. When's the last time that you and I have ever sat down in front of the mirror of God's word and just read it and just said, have I, have I really, don't I measure, how am I doing? Did I measure up to that? Am I living the way God wants me to live? Am I lost and locked in some kind of sin in my life? I dare say, probably many of us, that's not an experience we relish. That's not something we want to do. But he says, blessed are those who are repentant and brokenhearted over their sin. And then he says, blessed are those who are gentle. And this means, the word gentle means strength under control while trusting God for the results. And so these are people who are willing to restrain themselves. These are people who are willing to, to trust God that this is going to uh, be okay and, and, and God will take care of it. Now we come to the fourth one. The fourth one, the fourth link in the chain is uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And he says there, he says, Blessed are those or, hungry, or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Oh, wow, another one of those. Just, here it is. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> Understand it. Embrace it into your life. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, really? Well, what does it all mean? What does it all mean to hunger and thirst? What does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? And even if I did it, in the end of the day, the end of it all, will I be satisfied? And so the question at hand today is, what do we hunger and thirst after? What is it that fuels your life? What are we passionately pursuing? And once we get it, will it make us happy? Well, let's see what God says. Let's see what God says. So join me in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And so as we approach this, the first thing we've got to ask is, what does hungering and thirsting mean? Why are those words so important? Now, what you notice very quickly is when Jesus teaches, he never wastes a single word. He chooses his words wisely. Why? Because he wants to convey to us a certain truth. He wants us to get it. And so in this case, he uses the word hungering and thirsting. Both words describe a basic function and need of life. And so what Jesus is saying to us is that this is basic to your spiritual life, my friend. This is something that ought to be taking place all the time. This is something that is necessary for your life. It is a necessity and not a luxury. It's mandatory and not optional, he says. And then if you look further, it's not only a basic function, but both words describe an intense drive, a passionate pursuit, a single-minded ambition. It is a consuming inner desire that can determine and guide our lives and orders our priorities. Now, some of us probably have never uh, experienced hunger and thirst to the extent that 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 Jesus is 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 encountering here, okay, and so uh, one time I was as, as a young person I, I went to an open door mission we called them and this was a mission to the homeless and they served one meal a day, free of charge one meal a day, and so the the homeless and the poor and the, and the people who were needy would line up outside the door. And I got on the serving line. And and after I served, I would go and sit with them and and share with them and learn something about them. And so what happened is that when they came through the line, these people had been waiting all day. This is their one meal. And you look at their faces and the, the, the impression of hunger and thirst just wilted your heart. You just couldn't believe it. They come in and their faces are gaunt. Their eyes are sunken. They're looking at the food and they barely have the strength to tell you what they want to eat. And then they get the food and they humbly and quietly shuffle their feet and they get to the table. And then they dive in. And it's like there's no tomorrow. This is it. And they can't get it in fast enough. And you see that hungering and thirsting. What do you see? Hungering and thirsting. I got a good idea of this uh, not too long ago. I was fellowshipping with a, a, a Singaporean. And, and uh, we just came out of the, the uh, wonderful meal together. And we were rolling to the car. 
And so what happened is uh, on the way to the car, I, I said, you know, tell me a little bit about you and, and your family and things like that. And so he began to just, you know, give me some highlights and stuff. And, 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 and we got talking about food. You know, it's always on the mind of Singaporeans, food, you know. <clears throat> and so the Singaporean said, he said, uh, I came from a large family. And he said that uh, we had chicken once a year, once a year. And I looked at him. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, 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 no. He says, he says, our family was so poor, we had a chicken for once a year. And he said it was a Chinese New Year. We were able to afford one chicken for all eight of us. And I just looked at him. My jaw just dropped. I said, well, what did you eat in between Chinese New Year? It's a long time between Chinese New Year. And he says, well, whatever was available. It was very simple. He said there were times when there was no food and we were hungry. And that just struck me. You see, the present generation of Singaporeans, this is not on their menu of experiences. This is not something that they have encountered, perhaps. You see? Because the other generation before them has. They knew what it is to hunger and thirst. And Jesus choosing these words, hunger and thirst, he wants us to get the point that this ought to be something that's basic to our lives, but it's also, it is an intense drive. Is it a passionate pursuit? It is single-minded ambition. And that's the word, that's the words he used. Thirdly, it is also, both words describe a constant, continuous pursuit. The way it is written in the Bible, both words describe an ongoing craving or feeling to live righteously, irrespective of our moods or circumstances. You see, sometimes we like to believe that we can put off the decision on righteousness, that we should just, you know, pick and choose, just go our merry way. But it is not something we should put off in the future or want to do only if we feel like it. It is something that we should passionately pursue all the time. What is it that we are supposed to pursue? Well, that leads us to the second question. What we are supposed to hunger and thirst after is we are supposed to be pursuing righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? That which is in accord with God's will. That which pleases God. That which God requires of us. In other words, in its most basic sense, righteousness is that which is right, just, and good according to God. Now, mark my words, that last part phrase of that sentence is very important. According to God. You see, not according to you, not according to me, but according to God. Please note that Christ was emphasizing the goal of our life should be hungry and thirsting after his righteousness, knowing that while on this side of the of heaven, we will not achieve righteous perfection. Please note that God did said, blessed are those who are righteous and who have arrived at perfection, who have arrived at sinlessness. That's not what he said. Why? Because he knows we will not pursue, we will not ever arrive at that. Now, some of you are really sharp and you're sitting out there and you said, then why is God telling us to hunger and thirst after something that we cannot possibly achieve? 
because his point is that we, the, the point is progress and not perfection. Christ was emphasizing that all true disciples should keep on seeking to be and do that which is right, just, and good before him. Christ was emphasizing that hungering and thirsting should be a natural part of our being. It should be just part of our being. That That's the first thing. That's the default step in our life. But you see, most of the time, seeking God's righteousness is not our default methodology. It is not our default principle that we live by. You know what is? Our default is to rationalize. How can I rationalize around this? <laughs> you know, how can I, how can, how can I clean my conscience from feeling guilty that I just told a, a little white lie instead of a black lie? You see? That's our default. You see? And rather God says, no hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so, another way to put this is that because we are all frail humans, our goal is progress and not perfection in terms of daily righteous living. So that's what keeps us in the game. That's what keeps us waking up in the morning. That's what keeps us wanting to pursue this, is this idea. Am I more righteous today than I was yesterday? And will I be more righteous tomorrow than I am today? You see, you just keep on keeping on. Well, that's all well and good, Pastor, but what happens if I don't feel like it or I don't want to go after it as I should? That's a very real concern. If we are purposely holding back when we can make more progress, God knows that and he will deal with us accordingly. And so depending on what area it is, God may have to discipline us. How many of us here like to be disciplined? (laughs) I didn't see any hands go up. You know, I didn't see anything. I saw some of you waking up and others I didn't see anything. All right. But what he's basically saying to us is that God will see and God will act and he will discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and verse 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so we sometimes get this image of God being this passive elderly person who sits there and doesn't have the strength or the desire, or, the, or the, the gumption to dare to correct us. And yet scripture is saying just the opposite. If we do not pursue righteousness, he will bring it to our attention, and he will take the steps that are needed to make it happen. Now, this challenge flies in the face of conventional worldly thinking. Why? Because there are two myths that the world has convinced us to base our lives upon. The world gives us two excuses or reasons to pursue life the way we want to on our own terms. What are the two myths? The first one is very familiar to you. And the first myth is that there are no moral absolutes. How can you say hunger and thirst after righteousness? Who's to say this is right? And who's to say this is wrong? You see? 
It, we, we fool ourselves into believing that the, what the world says. And the, what the world says that it just depends on the person or the situation. <clears throat> Each person is basically free to live by whatever standard they choose or is convenient. But much of the world's problems find their root in this false thinking. Without clear parameters of right and wrong, people do whatever they please, eventually serving as a justification to trample over someone else's rights and well-being. See, as rational human beings, we have the marvelous ability to be able to justify what we do, even when it's wrong. (laughs) When we're wrong, we may think ourselves is right. And so we go off and we say it's okay to tell a lie because the means justify the ends justify the means and all of this kind of stuff. And we can't do this because if we do that, we're going to lose that. And we, you know, you see, why? Because the world says there are no moral absolutes. You be the judge. You decide. You and your situation depends. That's one myth. That's one myth. The next myth that the world uh, sells to us is this, is that we will be happy when we please ourselves rather than pleasing anyone else. But that myth is smashed by the guilty conscience so often experienced when we do something morally or ethically wrong. You see, I I, I see this sometimes happening in, 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 in failed marriages and and, and and so what happens is that, you know, one of the other partner gets dissatisfied with the other. And so they decide, I'm going to get me a new one. I'm going to get me a new one. I'm going to get a new model. I'm going to get one that's younger, faster, and, 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 and cheerier than the one I got, you know. And so they, they, they separate themselves from their present partner and they go off and they, they, they find themselves this other person only to find out that, It wasn't everything that it was cracked up to be. And suddenly they find themselves not with just two failed marriages, but they find, I mean, one marriage failed, but they find themselves with two. And so, you know, they have this idea that if I just please myself, I will be happy. That's what the world has sold us. That's the myth. The fuel for my life is to make myself happy. That's the myth. That's the drive. That's what's in the tank of our life and keeps us going. But God says, no, that isn't the way it is. It's hungering and thirsting what is right in God's sight. So this brings us to the last question. The last question is this. What is the result of hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What is the outcome of being this kind of person? And Christ gives us a stunning promise to those who passionately pursue what is right, just, and good before God. And it says there, they shall be satisfied. Now, if you're like me, at first you were disappointed because you were hoping for something really big. And all he says is, satisfied. That's all he says. Okay, I don't want to be just satisfied. Do you want to be just satisfied? Do you you want to be just okay? Do do you want to be just satisfied? No, you want to be elated. You want to be out of your mind with joy and delight. That's what you want, right? 
But he says, you will be satisfied. But let me help you with this, okay? What is the Greek word for satisfied? Why is this word so important to us? The, word, the Greek word here describes the feeling, feeding of animals until they want no more. They are totally full. They are totally content. They are totally satisfied. You see, that's the idea here. Satisfied is okay here because it actually means you can't top it up. You can't top it up. It's the best that it, it's as good as it gets. And so, and, the, and this is written in a form that indicates that God will satisfy us. In other words, they don't, you can't satisfy yourself with your own efforts, your own hard work, and your own sacrifices. There will be a sense of satisfaction that will come from God himself. Whoa. Are you kidding me? Let me give you, this is the closest example I could find. I was on leave in the United States, and so some of you know, some of you don't know. I have seven kids, okay? And so one of the goals that we have when we go back from my yearly visit is I try to see all the children. I try to see all the children. Some way, somehow, we're going to see all the children. And so number one daughter had come here for three weeks, and she'd come here and visit us in Singapore, and we had a wonderful time together. She said, after three weeks, Dad, three weeks with you is enough. I'm out of here. I'm going home. So she went home, okay? And so, but we saw her, right? So that's the least six, okay? So my wife and I, we make this ugly itinerary, okay? That's the only way I can call it. We fly into San Francisco. We stay one night. Early in the morning, we jump on an airplane. We fly to Seattle to go see one of our daughters and her kids. We spend two days with them. We catch an early flight. We come back to the Bay Area, and we spend time with both of our families. Then we jump on another plane. We go to Dallas, Texas. We go to Dallas, Texas, and we see you know some of our kids in and out, out and in, and all this kind of stuff. Then we jump on it for one night. We jump on an airplane. And we go to Nashville to go see another one of our daughters. Okay, spend two nights there, catch an early flight, come on back to Dallas and do our business. Okay, and I don't say that to impress you with all the airline miles I accumulated. All right, I'm not saying that. On this visit, something happened. What happened? When I usually go home from my yearly visit and I see my children, the children have an expectation. Dad's going to come home. He's going to lock himself in the bedroom. He's going to turn on the TV. He's going to sit there with a giant bag of Ruffles potato chip and a six-pack of Diet Dr. Pepper. And we will not see him come out unless he has to go to the bathroom. All right? That's the expectation of the children. This time we went back. And I said, I'm going to do right by my kids. And I'm going to actually try and interact with them and play with them. I'm actually going to try and talk to them about the Lord. I'm actually going to read some stories to them. My wife says, are you sure? (laughs) You know, all the kids have bought the big bag of Russell's potato chip and all the six pack of Dr. Pepper. They're ready for you. I said, no, I'm really going to do it. So we go to the visit all the children. Sure enough, I was able to interact with the grandchildren. So impressive and so important was this. My children took pictures of it and sent it to the whole family. And said, would you believe this? Look what dad's doing. They had the pictures to prove it. 
I came away with a sense of satisfaction. Job well done. Job well done. For once in my life, I finally did something right. I did something that was good. I did something that was just and righteous. That was from my children. But later, upon a time of quiet reflection, as I, I have a lot of time to reflect on the 20-hour plane ride, came back home. I said, my children were happy, but God, were you happy? The message that came back from the Lord was, well done, well done, well done. And there was a sense of peace and contentment and satisfaction that has escaped me on many prior visits. It came from the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be satisfied by God himself. You see, that's what comes when we hunger and thirst after righteousness according to God. So what does that mean for you and I here at GBC? Well, we're an important part of helping create that hungering and thirst for righteousness environment. And how are we going to make that happen here? We're going to help... We're going to help... Uh, make that happen by, first of all, spending time in the Word, learning what is right and just and good before God. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. How do you know what is right and just before God? Is it your opinion? Is it your opinion? Is it your opinion? Or is it the one who really counts? God. God says it's really, it's right for us to love one another, to forgive one another. God is right when he says that we should do this and we should do that. It's not your saying it's right. It's what God says. So spend time in the word of God to discover what is good and right before God. Then number two, seek and hunger for that righteousness in your own life. James chapter 1, verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You know, one of the things that really breaks my heart as a, as a brother in Christ and as a fellow member of the body of Christ is how many of us, as we get older, and we somehow think that our seniority in the family of God gives us a pass and that we can get away with anything. We can let things slide. We can become complacent and apathetic about what is right in God's eyes. No. If anything, we should be on the forefront of leading the community in what is just and right. You see? And that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to seek that in our own life. And then spread that hunger in others in your sphere of influence. Just as enthusiastic as we are about encouraging our friends and family to do the right thing, we ought to encourage them to be a person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. And we should be ones that should be their biggest cheerleaders. We come alongside one another. We don't kill one another. We don't stomp on one another. We don't, we don't hammer one another. But we say to one another, Hey, hey, together, let's seek what God wants. Let's be what God wants us to be. 
And if so, when I fall down, you pick me up. When you fall down, I'll pick you up. And let's get on with this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, um, faith, love, and peace, and with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Okay? And then, fourthly, stay the course. Don't give up, but look up. Psalms chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I shall call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. (laughs) Don't give up. Look up. Stay the course. Stay the course. And then seal the promise of God in your heart. Trust in God's promise. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So use your significant influence over your family, your friends, your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren to instill a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then we'll experience the satisfaction that comes from God. Well done. Well done. God has laid out another step in the path to real happiness. And that was hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We all hunger and thirst for something, but God wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That which is right, that which is just, that which is good before God. What will you continue to hunger and thirst after? And what will you get after you get it? These are the questions we have to challenge ourselves with. So, as you leave here today, what are you hungering and thirsting for? after what would be your answer let's pray father in heaven because you are God you're not another human being with all of its frailties and weaknesses but you are almighty God And you have spoken to us this morning. And you have said to us that true happiness lies in our hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Your righteousness. Let us get past all of our own desires, all of our own rationalizations. Let's be frank and let's be honest. Let us get it right this time. Father, make us a people who are hungry and thirsting after righteousness. Make us a people who are after God's own heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.